This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We found an interesting story out of uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Listen to this. A minimum security prisoner escaped from a halfway house in Alaska and then after getting away decided to come back three hours later, uh, but not to turn himself in. State troopers say 20-year-old Joshua Yaska returned with an SUV and tried to help other inmates flee the facility in Fairbanks. Staff members say uh, Yaska was spotted leaving on a bike just after 1 a.m. Sunday, and the trooper said he returned about 4.20 a.m. By the way, somehow found an SUV. Just apparently somebody had left it for him, donated it, and tried to aid in the escape of other inmates. Authorities say he tried to uh, strike uh, a halfway house employee with the vehicle. And anyway, they, they caught up with him that night after he broke into a relative's home. Now, we're trying to, as we were talking about the story with our team, we decided, you know, sometimes when you make a plan, it sounds better. Like it, it, it seems like it's better in your head then it really gets rolled out, you know, as you're as you're trying to break everyone out of the prison. And we, we thought that uh, when it comes down to it, that he he probably thought it was going to be more like a Braveheart moment. Would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take yeah, see, see, he thought it was going to be like that, this Braveheart moment where he just he would motivate them and they were all pumped up. and They're like, yes. And then they storm out of the building. Uh, it actually ended up sounding more like this. And then he was arrested. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it sounds a lot better. Like you are free, man. And it's more like, I We're coming to get you. Yeah. It always looks better when you when when you're thinking it through. Hey, you guys, I'm breaking you out. That's the problem with being a criminal today. You got to think it through and yet you may not have the capacity to think it through. Hmm? See? This is why you got to be careful, kids. It's uh it's never it's never going to be pretty. Um, as we talk on the show so many times um, and, and get into life, it's, it's always harder than we think it's going to be. I mean, think about it. When in your life has it ever just been easy? Like, ah, holy cow, life is so easy. Because if, if the minute you're thinking, man, life is easy, it seems like you're setting yourself up for something big to happen. Have you ever felt like that? The minute you start to think, boy, this is a cakewalk. Or the minute you think that school, for example, is just, oh, it's so, boy, I am loving what I'm doing. Then all of a sudden something weird will happen. And it might even be good, like a promotion. Now all of a sudden you get a promotion. So no longer do you just get to be you know, a great salesperson. You now get to manage eight other salespeople. Which is so great because, right, it's more money. And then you start hearing them tell the stories about how their car didn't work, so they missed the appointment, and then it didn't. Ah. 
If there's anything I've learned in life, just give it time. If it's too easy, it'll get harder. If it's too hard, give it time because guess why? It'll get easier. The great benefit of life um, and, and things that we think are easy, things that we think are hard, just give it time. Because in the end, it'll get, it'll get better. It always does. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Gordon B. Hinckley, who was once a president of uh, the Church of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the church that uh, runs BYU, owns BYU. And one of um, his great uh, quotes that he's, he's so known, known for is um, simply keep trying, be believing, be happy, don't get discouraged. Things will work out. Be happy. Keep at it. Keep believing. Be happy. Don't get discouraged. Things will work out. So if you've ever doubted, folks, take a big, deep breath. Things will work out. Just give it a few more days. Don't give up. Just get busy. Get working on it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Life is good. And we sit here, we get so caught up in the news from like Orlando and the political news. But meanwhile, there's just a family from Arlington that's running a site and uh, for 3D printing of prosthetic hands, right? And they're not, again, they're, they're not bionic. They're not, sometimes the plastic doesn't work. They're, they're strung together and made functional by, you know, strong fishing line, Um so they're not perfect, but what they've created is a community, and it, I really feel like it's it's the model. It, it is the model of of charity. We've seen it uh, on the show. We try to bring you a lot of these people so that you can see the good that's going on out there. But this world's going to be changed by by groups of people, by communities of people. It's no longer going to be done by one person. So we we spend all of this this time on Trump and on Clinton, and yet the world's going to be changed by more people like the Owens that we just heard from. Uh, Margaret Mead has a great quote that says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So you're a part of that community, and um, everybody's got something to offer, again, the community is more valuable than probably um, some of the things that we we might hope to have happen. I mean, I would love this charity, uh, enablingthefuture.org, to be able to move much faster than it is, for example, um, to you know improve the lives of thousands or millions of people if possible. But really, in a way, that the community has to go at the community's pace. It has to go at, a, at their speed. Um, and the benefit of it going at that speed is that eventually that uh, community will be able to sustain itself and grow itself, and it will grow so organically that it will probably have a better impact on life and on, um, on its purpose, on its goal. When we think about all this technology and, and the, how it enables us, how it takes us to a completely different level – what what are you doing with it personally? Um, 
it, it's, it can be to your advantage. It can be to your disadvantage. And we always have on the show the people that come and talk to us about technology and how it's, we end up wasting our time and how we might be able to take better advantage of it. But simply finding a community. We also talk about the fact that a lot of our, uh, us feel like we're being, you know, we're becoming more and more solo uh, creatures because of technology. It's not actually broadening my circle. It's making me, you know, be impacted by what others are doing. And then I pull away and are, you know, depressed because I don't have a boat because <laughs> I just looked at my friend's Facebook page and he just took his kids out on a boat and I don't even have a boat. Um, the reality is, though, again, it's this is another example from enablingthefuture.org that you can go belong to a, a bigger community. So imagine that you're just – imagine you're uh, an engineer and you've always loved putting, you know, the the furniture together from Ikea. And that always has been exciting for you. But you hardly you, – you're you've bought all the furniture you need. Where can I use my talents? Um, maybe you have kids that are no longer in scouts so you can't build the Pinewood Derby car for them anymore. <laughs> As many fathers are known to do. So what you might be able to do with some of your great skills is to reach out and find a community. We're all members of a greater community, right? And if we could find a way to go take our talents, our gifts, and hook into an organization like enablingthefuture.org, it's a chance to give back to the world. It's a chance to serve. It's a chance to then use your gifts, your talents, the things that are unique to you. I'm not an engineer, so if I became a part of this community, I would probably just be a cheerleader on the side, uh, maybe a fundraiser, but I wouldn't be one that's that's innovating the device or the, the 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 design. But that's not my role. But there are designers that would be great there. So don't get down. Don't get discouraged when it comes to all of this technology, when it comes to um, what you can offer the world, because really what you can offer the world is just you. And if we can find ways to to get into these types of situations or create some of them out of BYU, we've seen some pretty amazing stories, including uh, the design of wheelchairs um, that were just made out of PVC pipe um, that are incredible for people. There's just no end to the, the needs of the world and your gifts and your abilities. So don't just sit back and think you're done because you're retired. Don't sit and think that, you know, because you're a stay-at-home parent that, that you know, that's, that's enough maybe. Maybe what you could do is if you're still being called to go innovate, if you're still being called to use your talents, your gifts, you know, your degrees, go find a charity. Go find some community to be a part of. It could be your church community. It could be giving back to your school community on the PTA. There's so many ways that this world needs you, and maybe that is the fastest way to create a better world. It's it's probably not through political you know drive, and it's probably not going to happen through just a business endeavor. Um, don't ever look away from the idea that it might just simply be giving back, serving, and being a member of a community. Powerful, powerful things create uh, these these wonderfully powerful charities. But the the thing that's probably most important is a person that cares a person with a heart that wants to belong and wants to do what they can. And that, I believe, is you, my friends. So we'll take a break, come back, uh, continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world and helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, so what is in a name? You know, for new parents, the name means a whole lot of stress. You got to name your kid, right? And will they love their name or hate their name? Will their name, you know, be be held up and and you know motivate them to become something more? Is it the right name? Is there a right name? Is it the right fit? Should you pick your your baby's name, uh, you know, a gender neutral name so they seem inclusive? There's a lot of uh, thought that goes into naming your baby. And here to talk about the surprising psychology behind naming our babies is uh, one of our contributors we love to have on the show, Dr. Susan Krauss-Whitborn. She is currently a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, also is a um, a writer for Psychology Today. Uh, Susan Krauss-Whitborn, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Matt. It's nice to be back. Great to have you back. This naming of a baby is a big deal. I mean, we always make jokes about it, but I I mean, you don't, ah, this goes on forever. This kid's going to carry this name forever. That's right, unless uh, the kid decides they've <laughs> they've had enough of it and uh, wants to switch, which uh, you know presents its own set of issues. Well, and, and so the fears we have as parents about the naming—I mean, it seems like some people think a lot more about it than others. Absolutely, uh, and for some, it's sort of automatic. It's been decided years ago that this would be the name and somebody's being honored by that name or it's just a favorite name of one of the parents. Um, And uh, hopefully they've given it enough thought so that it's a name that isn't going to make the poor kid's life miserable. (laughs) And you know what, as if everything else isn't going to be hard for the kid anyway, just growing up and being a, you know, a 14 year old boy or girl, um, the last thing you want is a name that'll get you beat up. Yeah, it's surprising, really, when you think about it, just why we place so much value on names. Yeah. Um, but also, na- parents tend to, whether consciously or not, um, give their child a name, which will then have j- implications for the way they're regarded in terms of their gender. Um, because uh, female names and male names, which is what I wrote the uh, blog about, um, actually differ in the way they're pronounced, which then has connotations for gender roles. So you're, you start to gender stereotype your child inadvertently um, by giving them a, a feminine or masculine name. Interesting. Yeah, like a guy named Ashley mm-hmm. or something like that. May, it, 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 no matter what happens, it's still there's still a culture you're dealing with, right? There's still context in which the name is being used that is going to become part of every, you know, every interaction. Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice if everybody used gender-neutral names, right? and then we wouldn't have this, what I would consider somewhat of a problem, um, just because you're kind of already being identified before you even do anything um, as masculine or feminine, and it's just because of the way that we um, associate different sounds with, you know, hard as male, soft as female. Hmm. Why don't we just go with numbers? If everyone just had a number... (laughs) Oh, they do that in prison, I think. Yeah. We'd probably figure out a way to... uh, (laughs) To ruin that. meaning out of that, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. What are some other issues that uh, parents run into that make this so difficult? Well, uh, aside from gender, which is what I focus the blog about, I mean, there is this um, factor of how unusual the name is and um, kind of what the connotations are. Um, And... 
you know, this is where it becomes such a challenge because you have no idea what this kid is going to be like, and you're trying to find a name that's going to match. Now, if you want to hedge your bets, you give the child a good middle name as well as a good first name, and then the child has an option. Um, I've always been bemused by people who go by their middle name. I just think it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, what was wrong with their first <laughs> you know, initial? I mean, it sounds kind of distinguished in a way. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know? Right, right. Um, B. F. Skinner. That was not, well, he just went by his two initials and then everybody called him Fred. So <laughs> it's instead of Burris. Yeah. That was his actual name. So, yeah, I mean, you want to really, you know, you come become paralyzed with indecision um, when you're picking a child's name, but um, you want to give it just some thought. How different do you want it to be from those of other children of the same uh, birth cohort? Um, how much do you want to honor somebody with the name? Um, and what are your own associations to that name? Hmm. How does it make you feel? It's It's funny. We named a child, one of our children, um, Britain after uh, – it wasn't after it, but we heard the name from a basketball player that was a yeah. local basketball player here. And now it's um, it's weird because we now – we kind of know this player as an adult and our children are all older and it's – but it's almost like our son is now associated with this pl- this person that he never knew. Oh, yeah. And it's, well, it's, it's, it's great. I mean it's it, he's a good person. It's a good association. It's yeah. just – it – it, it's different than when we, you know, we we name we put middle names after our our parents, and th- mm-hmm. that's kind of a neat association too. So there is a way to, to to but to create meaning is really what we're doing, right? This is about meaning making. It is. It really is. And um, it, it it you know again we can become paralyzed by indecision about yeah. this, um, but. The more you think about it, really, the better it is, because you can explore all those associations. Um, like, I got a wrong number one time when I was pregnant with my first, my older daughter, and uh, it was a, a, someone named Stacia they were looking for, and hmm. I thought, oh, Stacy, that's a nice name. Yeah. And I don't know, it just popped into my head, and it was so random, but now, luckily, she likes that name. <laughs> it's stuck. It's stuck with you. It's stuck, and it actually fits her personality, you know, perfectly. Um, and it has the added benefit of being gender neutral. Yeah. <laughs> what, what about this? It's so interesting, too, that um, it seems like some parents are thinking about the child when they're doing this, mm-hmm. and some are thinking about themselves. Like, mm-hmm. they're just trying to, they're trying to differentiate themselves. So they might, they, they might want to name their, their child Stacy, but then they've got to decide how they're going to spell it. Yes, and right. is it going to be I E? Is it going to be E Y? Right. Is it just going to be Y? And it's uh, there's there's a difference. It seems like between you know using the name Stacy and saying Stacy versus spelling it and then having mm-hmm. someone say it. It, mm-hmm. it. You know, it seems like you might not want to have a name. I don't know that every single time they call you up, <laughs> they pronounce it wrong, and you have to have a you have to always start every interaction with a correction. Well, you know, not, that, not necessarily, but potentially. But that actually, that's I, I kind of like that idea. Then that um, it be it sets you apart. An explanation, yeah, um, and it does set you apart. Uh, but then there are parents who want to uh, promote a certain initial. 
Um, and actually, I did like the fact that her, the first initial was an S. <laughs> yeah. In my yeah. name. And then it also makes it easier when you think about handing things down to your... Oh, yeah. Or, on the other hand, they take stuff of yours because it starts with the same initial. <laughs> That's right. I, I really like that locket, Mom. It's got an S on it. <laughs> That's right. Can I take the towels, Mom? You're not going to need them. That's right. Um, That's they right. do have S's on them. Well, it, it's interesting. One of the things I, I uh, was fascinated about is this um, this idea that you get get into uh, phonemes. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Uh-huh. Talk about that with us. Uh, you've, you've started a bit, but, but get, in, get into the phonemes. Okay, so first you have to practice saying this and that, um, and, or thin. So you put your finger on your Adam's apple, and if you can feel a vibration, it means it's voiced. And if you can't, then it's unvoiced. So um, thin, thin. Is unvoiced. Yeah. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. And this is voiced. This. Okay. So some people in reading that blog said they couldn't tell the difference at all, but, um, <laughs> but but that's one easy way. So then you look at the voiced phonemes, and the names that start with the voiced phoneme <clears throat> are thought of as harder, which then has masculine implications because mm. men are hard, women are soft. Sure. So it turns out that's how names are organized, um, and so by following that rule, you're providing a gender stereotype for your child without thinking about it. So it's not so a gender neutral name is best in a way. Um but apart from that, you might want to think about do you want to conform or do you want to um you know break out against um the gender stereotypes that we we impose on people. Interesting. So if you and that's so subtle, right? So that's just mm-hmm. that's that's almost I guess that's the harshness, the hardness mm-hmm. of how the sound is is made around the name. Yeah, and even if they made up names that weren't actual names but gave them these characteristics, people tend to associate the hard ones with men and the soft ones with women. Give, give me some examples of some voiced names of females. Oh, okay. Um uh-huh. Um, it's a little curveball. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, I think I mentioned... Uh, is Olga. Olga. Olga would be voiced. Yeah, that's voiced. So that's so that's so that, that seems harsher. Uh-huh, it does. Um, and uh, it's funny because the authors of the study were Michael, which is voiced, and Adam, which is voiced. So, and they conform to their own stereotypes. Um, but uh, Timothy, Rachel also doesn't follow that rule. Um, Timothy uh, does not. So, you know, you can look at exceptions all around. But um, the best way to tell is put your finger on your Adam's apple <laughs> and see if it vibrates or not. And if you don't have a good vibrating Adam's apple, find somebody who does. And then if you're really desperate, um, you can just run through a bunch of baby names. I think that's what I did when I was reading the study. Yeah. I just started looking at names of babies and playing around with it, and it was fascinating. Okay, so, so test, test this because I'm not sure how my Adam's apple is performing today. Ben, is Ben, is ben a voice name or a? Unvoiced. Unvoiced. So it's, it's a softer name. Yep. How about Matt. Oh, Matt. Oh, you're so voiced, it's not even funny. <laughs> you're so right, Susan. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that no. – it's, but it's such a subtle little idea, isn't it? And – but the research is showing that this – just the simple voicing of the name – or, I mean, the simple 
uh, kind of, I guess, tone, vibration that comes off tends to categorize it in our minds as as strong or as softer. That's right. That's right. It's interesting. Um, And there's a whole other angle to it as well, which is um, another study has shown an sort of implicit egotism, it's called, that you tend to drift towards occupations and even places to live that uh, are kind of where your name resonates. Oh. So Dennis becomes a dentist. Yeah. Matt becomes a doormat. Oh. I get it. (laughs) No, I get it, Susan. Let's take a break, Susan. We'll come back and make more sense of the naming of our children. Susan Krauss-Whitborn is joining us, and uh, she really, she's she's a professor. She's she's, uh, an author. She's everywhere. She's authored over 160 refereed articles and book chapters and 16 books. We'll take a break more with Susan Krauss-Whitborn when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Friends of the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about uh, your children and naming children. Uh, it really is a very stressful moment for parents to figure out what name you are going to hang on your child for their lifetime. And again, they can change their names if they want to, or you know, uh, some just make up their own names. We have a son, this Briton I was talking about, cutest kid in the world, a high schooler, but all of his friends call him Bobo. So it almost didn't even matter that we stressed about what we were going to call him because now he's Bobo. All of the parents know him as Bobo. Someday when he runs for president, it will be President Bobo Townsend. <sighs> Bobo. I was pretty sure that was a clown or a monkey. But um, they may end up choosing their own name in the end. But joining us is uh, Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn. Susan Krauss uh, Whitborn is currently a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's the author of over 160 refereed articles and uh, uh, and book chapters and 16 books, many in multiple editions and translations. She um, also uh, her most popular or recent popular work is the Search for Fulfillment. That was released in 2010. It's uh, it's great to have you back with us, Susan Krauss Whitborn. Thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you there earlier. <laughs> no, no, no. You're fine. But, but no, Bozo is the clown. I think. Oh, Bozo oh, is a clown. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Bobo. I don't know who Bobo is. I don't know. It's, it's my cute, son. Though. Yeah. It's cute. It's uh-huh. cute, and it's his. It's his name. You know. And what's cool though is about this. It does become our identity. Right. This is. It does. It really does. And it matters. Like they, they say that, you know, when somebody says your name psychologically, it creates a response in you that they know your name, that they're connected to you that way. Um, talk about what else we know when it comes to names and the parents. What does the naming mean about the parent? Well, you're projecting your kind of wishes and hopes and onto your child, uh, maybe a part of your own identity. As I said before, if you're uh, using similar initials or um, yeah, people or your, the same name as yourself. That's what some people do. Yeah. I, I've been at reception at uh, family gatherings where almost everybody there is called Sue, mm-hmm. 
and then I'm Sue. So that actually, and I'm not even part of their family. It doesn't so. work. There's too many Sues. <laughs> there's Sue Senior, Sue Junior. There's Aunt Sue. There's the whole yeah. of them. But everybody used that name. So I mean, that's where people project their own identities onto their child quite li- literally. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Right. It's just interesting. It, it, it's always, um, I, I couldn't do it. I named my second, my first son, my second child, we named um, Jacob Matthew after me. But I, I had a hard time wanting to put his name so that we'd, I, I don't know. I didn't want to project me onto him either. I thought that would, that might ruin him. Well, the inserting it in the middle, though, you know, it wasn't, you know. So he can idea. use it, you know, he can drop it if he needs to. That's right. But he probably won't want to. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's a great thing is about family traditions. Uh, not only does it simplify life <laughs> yeah. a lot um, because you decided, although it may be the name of one parent's parent and not the other. So what do you do about that? Right. And one parent is being continued on and not the other. So that's then true. that's why some people will opt for a completely different name or one that maybe is slightly reminiscent. Or then there's the last name. We haven't even talked about that. Yeah. And what goes with the last name? So um, I don't think there's any research at all on this, but I am quite fascinated by initials and the initials that your name will huh. form. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my, again, I, I've, I think I've picked a bad uh, – my initials are MT. Yeah. Which okay. doesn't that just mean empty? Oh, but what's your middle name? M M T. Oh, see, that's strong. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, you know, it's it, people who have last names that begin with a vowel. Um, it, it's you know, it's it's kind of interesting because there's so many words, three-letter words you can form that end in a vowel. So I actually think it's just as important for parents to put initials together and see what that does. Hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. Uh, I agree because I one of my children uh, is named Sarah, and she goes by Sarah Townsend Davies, and her so her initials are STD. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that went that went totally sideways. <laughs> that was, but again, you don't think that through. She could drop the T. She could, uh-huh. she, and so she only uses it on special occasions. Yeah, but. It's. I guess that's a, that's an interesting thing. And there was an article. I don't know if you saw the article that came out that um, they might start. Many people are thinking of hyphenating their name with their wife, so yeah. that so and even the men are going to hyphenate their name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and share this last way. name. Yeah, um, I mean that you, people. I thought it, the trend was reversing. Um, there was that trend, then there wasn't that trend. Maybe it's coming back now mm-hmm. uh, with the couple hyphenating their name. And, you know, then the question becomes what happens when that person gets married and then you've got 16 names yeah. for yourself. Yeah. For the genealogists in the world, we're really complicating their lives. We might yeah. actually be making them easier. I think easier. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's true, huh? Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's a – and then – but people can play around with all sorts of options, which is what's kind of nice um, about the way things are now is that we do seem to be more conscious of the psychological meaning of a name and the symbolic value of taking on your partner's name or not or, or the hyphenating, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, so it, it, that's where um, we're opening up some options, which I think can help people feel better. What, what do you think, um, just I'm sure in all of your studies you've seen something 
these the couples that divorce and uh, the mother. I, I've always found it really almost noble that uh, a mother that that has divorced her husband but still has her children, and those the children carry the husband's name, and the mother keeps that name. Mm-hmm. And there's talk just about it psychologically because this name it makes us it, it almost is a membership to our group right it's a it's an identifier it's a label and it seems like you know it's good for children to have to to be able to feel proud of their name their first and their last name and have it mm-hmm. it's it's part of their identity yeah it is and i mean that is I, but it's hard to take change a child's last name, though, too, after yeah. in that example. Right. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it probably reflects, though, some feelings of friendship that parents have towards each other, even though they're not together anymore. Yeah, respect, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, which is ultimately probably good for the child. I'm, you know, I'm going to not take your name away. Right. We're going to keep that because there still is that bond. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting thing because we you wouldn't think names would play such a big deal, but they obviously do because we're so stressed when we have to name someone. Yep, that's right. That's right. It's a good sign, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and then there's some that just say, "Hey, you're you're pumpkin bread," and we make up some name. Um, <laughs> yeah. A lot of the stars lately have just been naming wow. their kids, you know, Apple or whatever. Blue Ivy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I that I well. I mean, it, that's probably the least of their issues that their kids are going to be dealing with. That's true, yeah, and notoriety and the fame. and Yes, it makes it very tough. Oh, wow. Well, Susan, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Keep man. writing on Psychology Today as well. Will do. Great talking to we'll you. We'll have you always. back. Thank you. Yeah. Take right, care. Uh, Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn. again, uh, you can find more information at uh, Psychology Today and many of her many articles there. Uh, Just a wonderful resource to all of us. We appreciate her. We're going to take a break, come back, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be doing a little Coach's Corner in just a few minutes. Stick with us, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, folks. Hey, uh, earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone, or maybe a softness of tone, which which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name, or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's it's just tone, and it's something we don't always pay attention to, but in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner talking about our tone. And um, it's it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator of, of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably 
through somebody's uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the, sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben. They're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like, yeah. Kaylee and I will talk like that and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay. But her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Could you hear that? It's I subtle. hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today. Because tone it's it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that – you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not – you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it. But tone does communicate, communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and, and t- either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone. Okay? Five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay. You, you, ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay? Tone is not – it's not – They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just a vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. <laughs> this one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. 
But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you notice the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to, I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I, if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there's certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back next hour. More fun. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Well, we just heard some, some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. The, what we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. But what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if you, if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it, right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop, I got to stop it, oh my heavens, because I think that very energy, that emotion, is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts 
have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at. They might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. I'm, and they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I, I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. (sighs) Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved, then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought that maybe we ought to go do looking, go start looking at some porn, which then creates feelings, which then drives action. Or boredom. Hey, there's nothing going on here. Maybe I ought to go look at that thing that and then off we go. Part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a a bunch of guilt and pain. What we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought, what are the thoughts you have, and then like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier. Maybe do something to, you know, get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? If you, we got our parents to blame. We, you know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So. Then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging, and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got. Uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training 
where I would take these families and, and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships, to make sure that they were learning you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, one of the things that I have found is is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world, and, and I think that's true. Except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're that they that they're cared for that they're worth something, and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school, that we need to validate their worth, not just their works, right? Like we talk a lot about what our kid did and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He, he was, you know, um, valedictorian, top of his class. And we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments – we might be setting them up for something because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting the social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their their sense of um, care for others, they um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a god, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know, it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um, and go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called? Our 
podcasts. That's it. Go look up our podcasts and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is part of the problem. That is some of the anger, the frustration you see in middle America. And it seems like the middle America kind of blue collar worker might be a little more pro-Trump, I guess. Who knows exactly. But uh, the younger America, pro-Bernie. Some are frustrated seeing a politician uh, or politicians like the Clintons be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, just seems weird. That's uh, This is based on what Rana was teaching us. Maybe this is why so many people want to see Hillary Clinton's uh, transcripts, right, to what she said to these organizations that are taking 25 percent of the money of our economy. And – Maybe the same reason why they want to see what Donald's been doing on his taxes. People are mad. (sighs) And we've got to somehow take our country back when it comes to our our businesses, our economy. We are so into, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Just fatten yourself up and tomorrow will be fine. But uh, it doesn't – it doesn't – seem like that. It seems like we might be setting ourselves up for another fall when a tiny percentage of Americans have enough savings to cover their bills for three months when like 5% maybe, 10% of America could cover their three months of bills if, if they stopped working today. That's scary. If everyone else is living paycheck to paycheck – we need some tough love, and the problem is we keep looking to leaders to do it, and I think the we might be giving our leadership way too much um, – what's the word? Respect? <laughs> we might be thinking that our, our Congress people are going to solve some of this stuff, and they obviously can't, especially if the legislation is being written by the companies and the organizations that are um, – that are – Benefiting. So this is our deal. This is our issue. And what I would love to have happen, we need a little tough love. Okay, so there's there's a story I found on CNN about a dad who sells his disrespectful son's SUV on Craigslist. Okay, he's just had it. He's fed up with his son smoking weed and acting all thug like a Florida dad uh, said. So he sold his teen's SUV on Craigslist. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And he agreed to take $250 off the price if the buyer lived in the area just so his son would see the vehicle every now and then to remind him of how good he had it. Now, is that just a petty dad? No, no, it's not. It's a smart dad. I'd take 500 off if you could get a neighbor to buy it. And let the son see 
that you can't treat people like that. He wrote on Craigslist, I have my son's truck up for sale that I bought for him as his first car. He thinks it's cool to drive around with his friends smoking dope and acting all thug, especially not showing me and my wife the respect we deserve. This was a vehicle to finish school in, get a decent job and get a head start in life, but chose to throw it all away because his friends would rather have an influence on him than me. He'd rather have his friends have an influence on him more than I do. Now he can't uh, put those Jordans to use. Now now he can put the Jordans to use and walk, um, you know, a little swear word there, Uh, walk his blank off on the way to school. The truck's nice. It has ice cold air, power, everything. It's it's dirty inside, but, you know, with somebody with a little pride and respect can clean that right up. So it's on sale. And maybe that's what we need is somebody to come in and just whip us and just take us out and say, I mean, do we need another economic collapse? Or can you do something about it? Just ask yourself, what can you do about it? If your answer is nothing, then we got to rethink, right? And keep listening. We'll find ways. One way is to stay informed. Another way is to vote. And if you're frustrated with voting on the national level, vote on the local level. Look at your Congress people. They're having a huge impact on your life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, just a few weeks ago, news broke of PayPal co-founder Peter Till funding wrestling, uh, if you remember, wrestler Hulk Hogan's privacy lawsuit against the online media outlet Gawker. And uh, Till's personal vendetta stems from a 2007 report from Gawker publicly outing him as gay. And with his personal ties to an already $140 million case, questions regarding third-party finance litigation and free press laws have come to light. Um, And joining us today, we have Dr. Clay Calvert. He's a professor at the University of Florida and is the uh, Breckner Eminent Scholar in Mass Communication and Director of the Marion B. Breckner's First Amendment Project at the University of Florida. He's here today to help... uh, Guide us in this interesting discussion between First Amendment rights and uh, the freedom of the press. Also, um, third-party funding of lawsuits. We appreciate you being here, Dr. Clay Calvert. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. Uh, set the table for us as we as we kind of start this discussion. Um, so Peter Till is the the founder of PayPal, right? Uh, worth about two billion dollars. Correct. He was outed by. Gawker Magazine as gay back in 07. Right. It was a subsidiary publication, but correct. One owned by Nick Denton and Gawker. That's correct. Yep. Meanwhile, later, Hulk Hogan uh, has a a lawsuit against Gawker um, because of uh, videos that that were private videos of him that they that Gawker released to the public, I guess. Yeah, that's correct. So essentially in in that underline is an invasion of privacy lawsuit. Uh, many people always say it's a libel law. So okay, yeah. Invasion of privacy. That's correct. Which That's is different, right. right? I mean, I mean, an invasion of privacy. Is that why uh, Hulk Hogan was able to win this? 
Yes, I think it actually is, uh, because it, it really came down to the, it was a sex tape that he said had been taken without his knowledge, without his permission, and then that Gawker ran excerpts of this sex tape uh, on the Internet and then went into graphic descriptions of what was in it as well. And essentially he said, hey, I might be a celebrity, I may be famous, uh, but I do have some shred at least or some sliver of privacy still left and when i'm in a bedroom uh and uh i don't know a sex tape is being made uh this the publication of that tape therefore violates my privacy rights right his argument yes interesting and he won that uh and then had a i think it was a jury settlement wasn't it of about 140 million dollars yeah, yeah, it was a yeah. The jury verdict came down and said yes. It inv- so it's a jury of of you know people in Tampa, and they said yes. This violated Hulk Hogan's right of privacy. They awarded him a hundred and fifteen million dollars wow. in compensatory damages, and then as you said, another twenty five million uh, in punitive damages. So one hundred forty million uh, total. So a ton of money. <laughs> Jeez, that's incredible. And. Um, and not common, right? I mean, those kind of those level that level of settlement that's that's kind of that's right. un, unheard of. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it's a huge verdict, and I think a lot of it has to do with the jury's disdain simply for Nick Denton and one of the editors uh, for Gawker, who on the stand, uh, well, he had given a deposition and he was cross-examined about the deposition, and he basically suggested that. All sex tapes were newsworthy, in his view, unless it featured a child under the age of four years. Oh, man. And and that just was so damning, really, uh, because it it, it was flippant. He was was intending to be sarcastic, but, you know, sarcasm doesn't translate well (laughs) in in a position in a legal trial. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's where you just need to, you know, play it straight. (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. Man. So here's the, I guess, here's the dilemma, right? So Peter Till has the money to keep suing Gawker, and... Um, and make sure that this $140 million needs to be paid, along with other potential future lawsuits. Peter Till could just keep throwing the money at it. But what are the rights – what are the First Amendment rights here? And and so teach us. What is – and is Gawker even a traditional media journalist-backed paper? I mean what constitutes journalism today anyway? Right. Well, OK. That's it. Let's, let's start maybe with that part because that's a good question. So – Gawker is very different from the mainstream news media, which follow traditional ethical principles of journalism. Many people might laugh and say journalism is not ethical, but nonetheless, mainstream news organizations do adhere to ethical principles, and Gawker has always pushed the edge of that. The argument on the First Amendment side, however, is that the First Amendment just says freedom of the press. It doesn't say mainstream press, fringe press, first tier, yeah. And so a victory for Hulk Hogan against Gawker starts to nibble away. That's kind of the fear here, the slippery slope. Well, if they can get a verdict against Gawker, then who's next down the line? They'll start uh, you know, itching closer and closer to the, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the, the mainstream Washington Post kind of newspapers of the world. So, so yes, the fact that they may be fringe uh, does not mean they're not protected by the First Amendment, because how do we define who's a member of the mainstream and not? It's impossible. Right, right. They are a member of the press, whether we like them or not. And so that really is the fear here. And then as you're suggesting, yes, Peter Thiel has the uh, financial wherewithal 
to continue on multiple fronts, not just the Hulk Hogan lawsuit, but to finance other lawsuits targeting Gawker. And as you know now, Gawker has filed for bankruptcy right. uh, as an attempt now to avoid paying out the $140 million. But I would add the case is now on appeal, uh, or will go on appeal. And so whether or not uh, on appeal it's reversed, uh, maybe the judge gave the jury the wrong instructions, that still remains to be seen. I mean, what's clear now is it took a lot of money to defend the case so far, and, and they're never going to get that, Gawker's never going to get that money back. Right. You know? so, so even if the ultimate outcome on appeal is flipped over in favor of Gawker, a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of expense and effort has been spent on it. So. And I guess one of the big issues, and this opens up a whole other can of worms, and you wrote about this. You've got, an, I think, a wonderful article in theconversation.com uh, called Does Billionaire-Funded Lawsuit Against Gawker Create Playbook for Punishing Press? We'll put that up on our Twitter page as well so people can track it down. Thank you. You bet. It In that, um, you, you really you dive deeply into the third-party litigation, which – it really is, I think, probably becoming a cash cow for many attorneys. Yeah, it is, actually. And, and we see it much more in corporate, in corporate matters. And third-party litigation funding is – there's Burford Capital. There are a number of mainstream organizations that do this. And typically what they do is they take a stake in the outcome. So they'll front the money – to finance the lawsuit, which otherwise might not, uh, the plaintiff's attorney might not have the money of doing that. So essentially they say, tell you what, we'll help fund your lawsuit. This is the, the traditional model. Right. Right? And then in the end, we're, we're going to get a cut of it. You know, so the attorney gets his cut or her cut, and then we're going to get a cut, and then the plaintiff. And so, so you're gambling kind of on an outcome down, down the line. What's different here is that Peter Thiel was not seeking money by taking no. a cut. You know, he was seeking revenge. And that's, and that's kind of the controversial one. That it certainly it does, as I suggest in that article, it does create a playbook for millionaires and billionaires, if they really so desired, to make attacks on the press and to try to force members of the press into bankruptcy. Uh, in this case, though, I really think it's two men who obviously just despise each other, uh, Peter Thiel and Nick Denton. And, and as you suggested, Denton uh, outed uh, Thiel. Yeah. Uh, and. And I don't see it as a larger conspiracy theory that he's going to suddenly Peter, Peter Thiel is going to go after everybody else. But yeah, he has created the roadmap or the playbook such that if somebody else was so desired, they could probably follow it. Mm-hmm. They also have to get, as I suggest in there, the same set of lucky facts where you had people uh, on Gawker's side who the jury obviously didn't like, right. Hulk Hogan who they did like, the yeah. facts lined up. It was a sex tape. It was hidden. It was the perfect yeah, he, storm. Perfect storm. Exactly right. Well put. And you couldn't. I mean, yeah, so that won't always line up. Uh, It it seems, though, um, in many cases or many times, the media has an advantage just because they can state it and – and you know, you you as the some some innocent person might be scrambling trying to stop the media or beat the media, but um, companies seem to push a lot of other people out of business by just litigation, right? You can sue small businesses or smaller entities, you know, or threaten lawsuit after lawsuit. So companies do this all the time. Um, sure. Media has a disproportionate advantage many times. How do we, how do you ever balance all of these rights and needs? No, that's, it's a really good point. Uh, what you're kind of getting at initially there are what we call slap suits. Yeah. Uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation. Is, what, <laughs> it's a slap is that what it stands for? Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, strategic lawsuits against public participation. And that, that tends to be when the little guy is speaking out, criticizing some big corporation. And then the big corporation doesn't want that person uh, crit- uh, criticizing them. So what they do is they sue the little guy, basically. Yeah. They know the lawsuit's frivolous, but that's not their point. The point is that it becomes too expensive for the little person to stand up and litigate that case. Right. And so he says, tell you what, I'll shut up, I'll go away, you drop your lawsuit. And so, and so you know, those lawsuits are frivolous, and now a number of states, about 30, have what we call anti-slap statutes, would essentially allow those cases, because they are frivolous, to be dismissed quickly. So okay. you're right. I mean, it, it, it's bullying on both sides. So, so we've seen Peter Thiel now positioned as a bully, and somehow, miraculously, Gawker now becomes the media hero, <laughs> when in the past they were always considered very fringe and you right. know, on the outside. Who, and then even Gawker received some backing by a billionaire. Who stepped? Yes, exactly, to fund the appellate cause. Exactly, okay. So, so two Silicon Valley guys now, Thiel and the other person, so they're going to continue the funding. So basically, Gawker had run out of money. It declares bankruptcy, but this person in Silicon Valley, another venture capitalist or entrepreneur, uh, says, well, I'm going to now fund Gawker. So, you know, it's fair on both sides, I guess. If you can find the person who wants to do it, go for it. Wow, Battle of the Billionaires. Battle of the Billionaires. It should be a new reality TV show. That's right. (laughs) No, thanks. We've already (laughs) seen what TV shows can create. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Clay. Calvert, and he's walking us through uh, First Amendment rights and really the power of money to, um, to maybe upset the whole apple cart. We'll continue the discussion. Be right back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Online with us, uh, Dr. Clay Calvert. He's a professor at the University of Florida and is a uh, the Breckner Eminent Scholar in Mass Communications. And he's walking us through uh, an article he wrote that uh, in theconversation.com, all about does billionaire-funded lawsuits against Gawker create playbook for punishing the press? It really is a. I think it's it's a weird convergence. We're at this we're at this point in history where. What constitutes journalism? I guess it doesn't necessarily matter because they have the freedom of press, right? The freedom to to uh, publicize information and, and speak out. Uh, meanwhile, what's interesting, though, is that can happen on a blog now, right? That could happen on a phone call. I mean, that could happen uh, on a show like mine. It's this freedom of press is is there. And now the power of a billionaire to be able to shut you down legally or even a, a, a third party that's not even involved in the lawsuit can 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 change the game quite a bit. Uh, Dr. Clay Calvert, thank you so much for being with us. Sure, glad to be here. Talk about the uh, this kind of going forward. I mean, the you make a great case in your article that uh, this third party backing happens all the time, right? Whether it's the NRA backing certain lawsuits, the uh, I guess the ACLU, other organizations are third party entities coming in, and we I guess we suppose for a good reason, but it, it makes it so uh, the small guy can have a fight. Sure, I mean, and we, that's that's. 
one of the points I make and others have made too, not just me, but the fact that when we see the ACLU uh, or any other nonprofit organization taking on a case, usually, you know, that's really considered pro bono. I mean, the person, they're funding that lawsuit, and typically the ACLU will work with another law firm, a big law firm in their city, that its lawyers will do the work. So we think of that, and we don't think of that as third-party litigation funding, but somebody else is really covering the costs, and they've selected the plaintiffs. In those cases, though, we tend to think of it as more noble, especially like Somebody is challenging the government right. doing some action, and this little person is fighting for civil rights and civil liberties. Uh, here, it's a very different uh, fact. The other point that you made is really true. I mean, how do we define the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, you know, affecting freedom of the press, but how do we define who's a member of the press? Yeah, is that so, a blogger? Yeah, and, and the other game changer here, I think, is really important is the Internet, because once something is out on the internet, mm. including a sex tape uh, of Hulk Hogan, it's out there for good, really. Uh, and I think courts and jurors are starting to recognize that. So, you know, yes, it's a constellation of different factors here uh, coming together. Uh, you know, without the funding, really, from Peter Thiel in this case, I doubt uh, an attorney, a plaintiff's attorney, really would have taken this case on because it, it, it costs a lot to litigate a case like right. this. The media defense attorneys are paid by the hour, by the, by the company or the insurance company from the news organization. Plaintiff's attorneys, what the, they might get a retainer up front of here's ten, twenty thousand $20,000, get the case going for initial costs. But the rest of it, they're gambling on. Yeah. It, you know, it's like a speculating. Of, yeah. So, so if they don't win, they don't get paid. So, so to devote the amount of time and hours uh, that the attorneys for Hulk Hogan spent here on this case is pretty significant. And the only reason they were able to do it was because Teal was funding them. So some people might see it as simply leveling the playing field. Uh, but on the other hand, you're you're trying to destroy. A member of the of the news media, even if they're hugely fringe on that point, mm -hmm. you had a pro, you had a proposal, I believe, because um, I mean, and maybe one of the things you can do is just make so all attorneys have to um, state they have to overtly state the financial backing, who's backing this this case. Exactly right. I mean, it, transparency is is just you know the answer probably here because I think that's what that's what annoyed people and. You know, the first stories and hints came out after the trial was over. In other words, I think it's kind of as if people saw Teal as like sandbagging them at the end. Uh -huh. Oh, now we find out. You're behind it, you know, and it makes him look even more evil in some people's minds because he was all secretive and cloak and dagger. So I think if we had transparency up front and you knew this, then... I think the public would have a better, you know, ability to understand truly what's going on here. That this was a battle, not simply between Hulk Hogan and Gawker. It's a battle between Peter Thiel and Gawker over something that happened, uh, you know, back about eight years ago. It's there's something just about a good old American, you know, person just trying to do their best, and then even a threat of a lawsuit can it can be staggering. It can be life changing. Then they immediately have to engage an attorney, and some people can't go, you know, a month of engaging an attorney to fight something. So I bet overall there's so many of these that people just – they give up their own right to do what they're doing. They give up their own rights to speak simply because they can't afford the fees. 
Exactly right. So, I mean, if you think of exactly what you're saying, is there, there might be many more people out there who have had their privacy invaded, uh, who might have legitimate lawsuits, uh, but they, they might simply say to themselves, you know, I can't, I can't take this on, or maybe it's the flip side of that. In other words, yeah, litigation costs can be immense and also time-consuming. Um, and in this case, you had somebody who was willing to uh, – you know, have the purse, uh, as it were, to, to fund the to fund the case, where otherwise the case might never have gotten off the ground. Uh, so, oh, you you must be having a heyday today, or this <laughs> this month, because you've not only got this story going on, which is totally in your wheelhouse. Plus, I want to hear what you think about Donald Trump's blacklist. He has a media blacklist. Oh yeah, and um. As somebody that studies this and has studied it to the 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 highest degree, what what on earth do you do with a man that could be president um, who's already blacklisting the media? Yeah, it's it's quite stunning because now it's the Washington Post as yeah. well as every every a, a bunch of organizations. Yeah, let me let me give you some, let me give you some of them. Uh, the Huffington Post was was another one of the on the list. I believe um, the New York Times has been oh, placed yeah. on the list. Um, uh, oh, who else? I had the whole crazy the oh, National Review, and- Politico, BuzzFeed, New York Times, Des Moines Register, Mother Jones, Sheesh. <laughs> Univision. Yeah, and they'll they'll keep covering him, you know, and they're going to keep doing that. He's just trying to exclude them from press conferences and things like that. It's a it's a totally new tactic that no one's ever. That to the best of mind, I mean, people have always been Nixon and other people have, you know, they not like the press, and all politicians don't really like the press when they don't do things favorably. Right. But to actually exclude them, yeah, from this is is a is a very different move, uh, and. Uh, it's it's really crazy because all it means is he's going to make those media outlets even more frenzied against him, <laughs> uh, and they're going to keep digging up dirt against him. And he doesn't have many friends in the news media, and even the Wall Street Journal doesn't really like him. So you know, it's it's he, he's shooting himself in the foot uh, yeah. uh, here by doing that, and it's it is unheard of, and it's just we're into a very weird, obviously, uh, campaign season here. Did, uncharted, uncharted territory. Have you ever heard, and I can't remember which group it was, it was either like the Washington Post, the, the Washington Times, I can't remember. Somebody had dozens of their, um, dozens of their people researching, doing back research on Donald Trump to create stories. Did you hear about that? No, I've not, no, but I, I don't doubt that would be, uh, um, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the, he is just treading on different things, and he, the things he says. The irony here is that the mainstream news media gave him so much free coverage and put him in this right. position. Right. And, and that's, that's where the mainstream news media is somewhat responsible for this mm-hmm. phenomenon, because he would say outrageous things, and they would keep covering him, and then one by one, the mainstream candidates, as it were, fell by the wayside and and so in a way they they blew him up and promoted him into this position by giving him free coverage mm-hmm. and now he's kind of biting the hand that fed yeah. him uh so yeah it's it's a, and now they're biting him back the, and, the, the, bite him back. Right? and that's the thing and, and everything he says is just going to be and he's and he's looking more outrageous with with his comments that that he makes every day. And uh, I, they've not been able to rein the RNC has not been able to rein him in. Mm-hmm. Do you, as a as an expert, uh, Clay, in First Amendment, do you feel like um, and the press 
is there is there a responsibility on the press to be a responsible press? Um, is that part of the First Amendment at all, or is it just they have the freedom to be responsible or irresponsible, and then I guess the markets have to balance the rest? That's that's pretty much it. I mean, it, it, yeah, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press, and it doesn't say a responsible press. But I think most of the mainstream news organizations that I've suggested have kind of bought into this bargain that, okay, uh, you keep your hands off of us government, and we agree to abide by certain ethical principles of, of fairness or objectivity, whatever it might be, and we're going to try to do that. The the fringe outlets don't play by those rules. And increasingly, even on the mainstream, if you think about MSNBC on the left and Fox News on the right, we don't, they don't all play by those same rules either. Uh, so, yes, the First Amendment provides a huge shield of coverage for both the fringe as well as the mainstream organizations. It's just that the mainstream organizations typically play by a different set of rules. Uh, but as you're suggesting, the ultimate marketplace forces are it. If, if nobody watches it, uh, so we're complicit in it is the other way to look at it. If you go to the grocery store and you buy the gossip magazines and you think this is tawdry and trashy and sensational, uh, but by buying that magazine, we're propping them up. Uh, it's right. the same thing as we were just talking about with reality TV shows. Uh, hey, a lot of people watch them. So, so that's the marketplace forces. I mean, if nobody was buying it, if nobody was watching it, the news organization would go out of business. You know, yeah. so. Right. Oh, wow. And so overall, when we look at the First Amendment, um, you are we okay? Is, is the uh, cut surviving? Are we sliding? Yeah, yeah, are we losing yeah, yeah. it? We, we, uh, yes, yes. The first, the first Amendment is okay, and, and that's one of the questions, too, with the Hulk Hogan trial. Initially, I think a lot of people said the sky is falling. It's $140 right. million. Uh, I, I see Gawker as on the outside uh, of, of most of the news media outlets. If this were against the New York Times, and here's why it wouldn't be, because the New York Times would never publish a sex tape. It might right. say Hulk Hogan made a sex tape. Mm-hmm. But the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, no mainstream news organization is actually going to publish that. So they would never face that issue. Yeah, right. So, so maybe a little pruning here and there is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I, again, I hate to say that, but it's, I don't think the sky is falling on all news organizations. The First Amendment is still strong, and even though Trump has said, I'm going to roll back libel laws and make them a lot easier to sue the media. He has no power as president to do that. Libel right. law is state law. It's <laughs> judge-made law. It's statutory law. It's not executive-made law. So he can threaten that, uh, making libel laws easier to sue people, but uh, he has no power. Right. <laughs> hey, I um, appreciate it. Dr. Clay Calvert, thanks so much. Keep up your great work there at the University of Florida. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. You bet. And keep writing. Um, oh, whew. I'm telling you. Sometimes the little dog, the little snipey dog that just won't quit yapping, sometimes it needs to be, you know, bit by a little bigger dog. Just a little bite. Then it just quits yapping. Uh, Survival, I guess, of the fittest? Who knows? We'll take a break, folks. Interesting stuff. But uh, at least you have a right of a free press. And sometimes that might, you know, hurt. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
you know, we have a, the, the freedom of press and it, it, you know, the government can't interfere. You got to stay out of it. Except uh, that didn't happen in South Carolina. Apparently, a uh, South Carolina man was arrested Wednesday afternoon after investigators saw an online ad offering marijuana. I know that, dude. (laughs) Dude. Um, According to the Drug Enforcement Unit, James Kennelly uh, III posted an ad on Craigslist. This is what he typed. Uh, Pot. Dot, dot, dot. I sell weed. Slash $200. The ad not only went into detail about the prices and locations where he would sell the drugs, but also had Kinley's picture and phone number on it. Well, you need to know, like... Who you're, yeah, who you're working who, with. Who your vendor is, like... This is a face you, you can trust, dude. You don't buy carrots from from some random guy off the street. Yeah, you don't buy carrots from some ashen-faced man. You buy them from an orangish-looking young 20-year-old girl that eats carrots all day, and it's taken over her body color. The ad not only went into details on prices and locations, but where he could buy the drugs... Once authorities were made aware of the ad, an agent texted the number uh, and asked if it was real. Kinley reportedly called the agent back, asked what he needed. How much do you need, man? Oh, no! (laughs) And uh, guess what happened? You won't believe it. But then the agent set up a a location, a chance to meet. And when Kinley arrived at the meeting, by the way, I'm going to bet in a van full of smoke. Vapor. Vape. They placed the guy under arrest and arrested him for um, half an ounce of marijuana, and he was taken into custody. You can't even use Craigslist anymore. <sighs> ruined. Craigslist has been ruined for a long time, I think. Really? Yeah. Oh. I, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of bad stuff has gone down on yeah. Craigslist. But uh, interesting, this whole thing, you know what they call this in Colorado? Yard sale. This is a yard sale. Farmer's market. Farmer's market. Yeah, it's got to be the farmer's market because, yeah. yeah, farmers. Hey, um, so anyway, Spicoli, dude, it's it ain't easy. Hey, interesting story I found here. Uh, this might be important for all you listeners out in listener land. Very hot drinks are probably carcinogenic. You need to watch out for hot drinks. Hot drinks. Anyone who likes to curl up with a steaming hot drink should consider letting some of the warmth subside. Drinking it, according to uh, this article on CNN, could increase the risk of developing cancer. In a review published today by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the Cancer Agency of the World Health Organization said drinking very hot beverages was classified as probably carcinogenic to humans. More specifically... The review by a panel of global experts stated that drinking beverages at temperatures above 65 degrees Celsius or 149 degrees Fahrenheit could cause people to develop cancer of their esophagus, the eighth most common form 
of cancer worldwide. That is so not cool, man. I know it's not cool. That is so not cool. I know it's not cool. Here's video of the committee talking about hot drinks. That is so not cool, man. I know it's not cool. That is so not cool. I know it's not cool. There are the chair people. Uh, Drinking tea, coffee, or other hot beverages at this temperature can cause significant scald burns in the esophagus and when they're consumed and has previously been linked to an increase in cancer risk in this part of the body. The findings come after a group of 23 international scientists analyzed all available data on carcinogenicity of coffee, mate, and leaf infusion. That is so not cool, man. So uh, you got to watch out for the hot drinks, right? Watch out for the hot drinks. Could have told you this years ago. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. He said, you know, a lot of our time management issues are emotional management issues. And then it just, and it dawned on me because of what I do um, outside of the show. A lot of our relationship issues are emotional management issues. So think about this. When you think of your fight, the biggest argument you have with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, um, do you have, do you lose control? Do you feel rejected, dejected? Do you get angry? Do you feel hurt beyond measure? Do you get sick of it? You're tired. You're exhausted. You're worn out. A lot of this, if you notice, they're all emotions and they're emotional reactions. They're emotional management um, issues. And as as I've been working with couples, I had a couple come in the other day and basically the story goes like this. She um, – they were signing up. They went on a vacation to Hawaii. And while they were there, part of the deal was they had to go listen to a time uh, – like a timeshare meeting, right? Where a timeshare is where you go own one whatever, 40th of a condo in Hawaii and you put $20,000 down and then you get to go use it once every year or whatever. So a lot of these companies, you know, they've got great resorts all over the world and then you can go and, and go to all of those great areas. So this couple is there just enjoying basking in the beautiful glow of Hawaii. And while they're signing up, it's a couple – the husband had been married before, so it's a second marriage for him. And, um, you know, they've had tension a long time. Uh, They've been married about two or three years, but it's been tense just because of, you know, trying to merge these new families and things. So as they're signing up for the timeshare, the husband is is entering their names uh, into like the register that they're there ready for their meeting. And he enters his name and then he puts his ex-wife's name instead of his new wife's name. And she, you know, was paying attention and noticed that. Okay. So what we call that in my business, that's the stimulus right there. Right. That is now that is the this is the moment where the cage fight begins. And the minute the name was down, she saw it and she had an immediate emotional reaction to it. 
which was kind of like, what? Prepare to die. And he he realized what he had done, and he kind of froze. He hadn't looked at her, his wife yet, but he immediately had his own reaction like, ah, oh, jeez, I'm dead. I'm dead. Hope she didn't see that. And then he crosses the name off and puts his wife's, his second wife's name on. Okay. But that moment created this situation that then eventually, because we didn't manage our emotions in that moment, it turned into about two or three days of not talking, one day of the man not even being allowed in the hotel room, so he slept on the beach like a vagrant. And all, um, and they they fought and fought and fought and then actually made an appointment to come see me while they were still on their vacation and then they got in. So when I say relationship issues are emotional management issues, that's exactly what I mean. She had an emotional reaction to what was going on. He had a reaction to what was going on. And because nobody could control the emotion, manage their own emotion or lower their partner's emotion – it became an emotional, you know, roller coaster and quite honestly, an emotional explosion. So I wanted to take you through some tools and some ideas to help us all recognize that in our relationships, it's if you don't manage your own emotion, you're setting yourself up because the pain, no matter what, is going to be yours. Well, yeah, but if I make it painful enough for him, but if you're making it painful for your partner, you're the one that's still going to pay. Right, Because you have to maintain the pain in order to make it hurtful to another. So some rules, very basic rules. Rule number one, you are not your emotions. Because you feel angry doesn't mean you have to be angry. You can have a feeling as a human being and not ride it you know, to death. You're not a dog. You don't have to just you, – you can think through this. You can process it. Why would a loving, decent, great, amazing guy write down his ex-wife's name? Well, because he's thinking about her. Maybe. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just not thinking at all. Maybe he's going by habit. Maybe it has something to do with the mere fact that for, I don't know, how many years, uh, eight, nine years, he was married to one woman, and he's instead got two hours with or two years with this other woman. Well, yeah, but he should remember me more, right? Well, maybe. But you're not your emotion. You don't have to just react. You also are an agent that can choose and be what you need to be in this moment. You're, remember, emotions are there to teach you. They're there to help you. They're there to guide you. The reason both people were freaking out was so that we would pay attention to the moment. It, we weren't – we didn't the, – the wife didn't need to freak out and the husband didn't need to fear because – this was catastrophic. It didn't need to be catastrophic. It was just, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Emotions are there to make sure we pay attention. They're there to make sure we take advantage of the right opportunity to handle something. And so we could have just used the emotion as a tool to help us. But what ended up happening to this couple is they ended up blowing up. They hurt themselves. They hurt each other. And in the end, it was probably because of their insecurities. We've got to learn that if you have an emotional response to something, it's, even if it's justified, I get it. You should be – if you were in a car accident that a drunk driver caused and it hurt you, you should be emotional and you should be angry. I'm not saying don't be angry. 
I am saying however long you allow the emotion to manage you is how long you will suffer. So our goal would then be to find another emotion. And one of the things um, we talk about a lot on the show is, you know, find your your best self. So our lowest self will just take the emotion and run with it because we're afraid, we're hurt, we're worried, we're concerned. But our highest self um, will take us to another another level. This couple, when they finally got to my office, all I did eventually after talking to them is I showed them that they have many responses to this same situation. But I asked them very quite simply, um, if if all of a sudden one of you were sick, if one of you had cancer, would what would matter about this? And they're both like, well, nothing. Why wouldn't it matter if one of you if one of you really had cancer? And by the way, interestingly, one of them is sick, and it is scary. It's scary for them. The fear is the woman's afraid that she might. She might be more easily replaceable if she's not already making an imprint on this guy that he can't get the name right. But it was out of fear she responded. And then his fear about how she responds created an issue. But all of a sudden, if we could get present and be our best self, which we tend to be when someone's sick, we tend to be our best self when we are more in our highest values and our highest principles. Things tend to work better for us. So think about it. Think about your relationships. And don't just assume that your problems are your partner. They might very well just be your emotions and your emotional inability to manage those emotions. Emotional intelligence, as we wrap it up, is very basically just a few skills. Emotionally intelligent people recognize their own emotion and they know how to lower them and manage them and make them healthy. Emotionally intelligent people also know how to recognize the emotion of others and they know how to help those people lower their emotion. And emotionally intelligent people also know how to enroll people into their emotions and get people to buy into their good emotions. So if you are having relationship problems, can I suggest, especially if you can't, you seem like you can't get any progress going, don't maybe stop trying to work on your partner and instead just start learning some emotional intelligence skills, managing your own feelings, trying to not be so fearful, trying to operate out of your highest self, your best self. That essence, that goodness that's inside of every one of us when we choose to be good. Anyway, Emotional Management 101. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. $201 billion, folks, for mental health uh, care. That's it's just crazy, crazy numbers. But there are some things, let me just suggest, that you can do to manage uh, or at least try to work and coach yourself through some of your own uh, anxiety issues We'll particularly today talk about anxiety, and I work with a lot of uh, just a lot of people. Um, so many times I'll have a mom and a dad bring their kids in to see me, and as we sit down, they'll start just talking about how their child hates school. They'll talk about the you know they have a hard time going out and socializing and doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and it worries the parents, right? And so you have a mom sitting there saying, look, aren't you going to go play? You really ought to go play. The other kids are playing. Why don't you ever want to play? You're such a disappointment. And even if it's not like intentionally said that you're not cutting it, something's weird with you, um, they already know that. These kids know that. And what I find is a lot of times an anxious parent comes in and they're worried and, by the way, anxious about their child who probably – has a little of their own anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or what have you. 
And so what I do, uh, one of the things I do in my organization is I help um, coach people through uh, their anxiety. And there's just there's a lot of great research. And by the way, the, one of the number one ways to deal with your anxiety, 85% of it roughly, um, is simply your breathing, period. Usually when you're anxious, your your body starts to – uh, because of the, the the hormones and what's happening, your breathing tends to be more shallow and fast, right? So a shallow, fast, rapid breathing, which makes it so all of a sudden you're not getting a deep, full breath, which stresses you out. Yeah. I, I think I was talking about something else. But uh, like, you know, Lord Vader, for example. Lord Vader sometimes might have anxiety. Who knows? But one way we can deal with it is um, is breathing, just a deep cleansing breath, a deep enough breath that your chest, your belly, everything just pops out when you take that breath. And if you take a couple of those, you'll immediately feel some of the tension, the anxiousness. It'll dissipate. One reason is because your body is getting the air it needs. Another way that you can do this is um, talk it out. One of the fastest ways to get your anxiety out of you is simply to share it with another person. But sometimes it stresses you to share it so you don't share it, right? And instead you go, maybe you pull away, you disappear, you you maybe medicate. A lot of people just go medicate their anxieties and emotions. They just try to numb them. They'll drink. They'll, you know, do marijuana. But they're doing what they can to get rid of this anxiety and to relax. By the way, others are taking pharmaceutical pills that are coming from their doctor, right? One might be legal, one's illegal. But the the point, I guess, behind it is we're still using some other method, a drug, to manage our emotion and our anxiety. It's needed. I get it for some. I get it. Um, I personally would suggest you go to the legal form because – you're probably going to have less anxiety, right, than chasing down the illegal form. But everyone should try to find a person or be the person that someone that you care about can share an oath to. Uh, think about it. Do you have somebody you can talk out your most difficult things in life? Because if you don't, then you're going to stuff them. And when you stuff them, it's going to probably make you more anxious and usually more or less likely to that you're going to go act and do what you need to do. And then when anxious people don't go do what they need to do, they start to get depressed because they're not cutting it. They're not cutting it. Um, an activity that you might want to do is just find that one person you can share your deep feelings and concerns with, track them down, and even tell them, look, you're, my, you're kind of my go-to person on some of this, and I don't want to burden you. I don't want to overdo it, but could we just plan a time to meet every couple of weeks and talk? or however often that it works out for both of you. Another way to get some of the anxiety out is to write it out. One of my favorite activities with my clients is when they're feeling stressed, they've got a lot on their mind. If they've got stuff they've got to do, go write it down. Write your to-do list. Make a big, fat, nasty, gnarly to-do list. But some of the things 
aren't part of a to-do list. It's just feelings you're feeling. You're feeling overwhelmed. Your thoughts are swirling around in your mind. And what I'd suggest to my clients that they do is they write what they're feeling. Whatever they're thinking, they write it out. Like, holy cow, this job's driving me crazy. I, if I have one more person do this, I'm going to go crazy. Write your feelings out. And then what I ask them to do is write another line as they're writing. Instead of writing on a new line every time, write, write on the same line over the same sentence you wrote earlier. And then on the third time, go do it a third time on the same line. So you're going to write a sentence three times on the same line. And what's cool about it is it gets all the ideas out, the thoughts out. It gets the energy out, the emotion out without ever – without making it readable. So you can pretty much say whatever you need to say. It also releases the energy because it it takes energy to write. So by the time you're done getting that energy out, it's out of you. You're tired. You're exhausted. It's powerful. Another tool, think it out. You can sometimes think your anxieties away by simply, you know, being realistic and gathering data instead of just automatically taking the negative thoughts of the fears of the future and this pressurized world. Start using, you know, a part of your brain to actually evaluate your thinking. Notice your thoughts. Go through what you're thinking in your head. Okay, so that's a negative thought. What's another way to look for this? Another way to think it out is to look for more evidence. Usually when you talk to somebody that's anxious, they don't have all the evidence of what's going on because they've only collected the fearful evidence. But what I would always ask my son who was suffering with this, I'd say, can you give me some examples of where you're doing really well at school? And amazingly, there was an abundance of answers. And it starts to let his cognitive thinking override some of his emotion. Another tool that I think is super powerful is to turn your anxiety out. A lot of anxiety, I believe, is just we're so self-focused because it, you know, we're collapsing in on ourselves. And what we might want to try to do is find a way to serve our way out of this anxiety. Get out of yourself and go start offering yourself your tools, your resources, your help, your guidance. Offer to serve others. And as you offer to serve others, you get that great happy neurotransmitter, dopamine, starts to make you feel good. Anyway, folks, it's a tough game. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying there are other answers. There's four right there. I got many, many more, and uh, they're yours, and they're free. Start there. Or get online and start researching it. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dating is dead, exclamation point. Come on. You know, it's not what it, what it used to be. That's what we keep hearing uh, today that, you know, these kids, they just don't date like they used to. Um, you know, men used to pick up women up, knock at the door. Now it's all Snapchat and Tinder. But is that really what's going on in the dating world? Are they? Are people not dating anymore? Um, and is it really as awful as it seems or as some people make the dating world seem? So we thought we'd bring in the pro. And uh, who better to teach us about dating and what is dating than um, the author of the book Labor of Love, 
the invention of dating. It's it's a it's a wonderful piece that reviews the history and maybe and some of the some of the parallels of dating and and the you know the advancement of of uh, women and women's rights, the advancement also of of market economies and global marketing and even social media. Maura Weigel's her name. She is a PhD student at Yale University um, and in comparative literature and film and media studies and a wonderful author. Maura, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Honored and introduction. Well, this is a great I think I so I'm a relationship coach and I love uh, I love helping couples that are married stay married, communicate. But what's interesting, Maura, I loved your approach to this because I've I've always struggled um, talking about the dating side because I, I don't want to become cynical to it, right? I don't want to look like a dating. These kids don't date anymore. And so li- listening about your book, reading your book, I've, I started to find that there's a there's there's an interesting history to dating. Teach us. What, dating, it, it's it, talk about the history. I won't even lead it into what I want yeah, you to say. Yeah, well, talk I about the history. The question, to the question of whether or not dating is dead, I always like to say, you know, the invention of dating is the invention of the death of dating. <laughs> um, adults have, and I count myself among the adults, regretfully, so no name-calling here, but they have always, we have always worried that uh, that younger people are not doing it right. Uh, so the history of dating, as you were sort of alluding to in your introduction, uh, is about 100 years old. You know, people, it sounds strange now because we all take it for granted that that's the way we do things. But if you think of most times and places in human history, that is not how people have paired off. It's usually been controlled by families or by community leaders like priests or pastors or rabbis. And, uh, and it's really very, very new and very shocking uh, when young people start to do it around, around the turn of the last century in 1900. And my hope for exploring all of it was to bring, you know, some clarity and to sort of dispel some of this huge anxiety that I think you were bringing up. Yeah. Because I do think the sense that young people aren't doing it right, nobody ever feels like they're doing it right, and it produces a ton of anxiety for people on the dating market. <laughs> Which is why I guess they seem like they're not uh, doing it, but maybe the anxiety makes it so it's something they do quietly? No, I think, look, I think that what you're getting at is, um, I think what dating is for every generation changes really dramatically sometimes with other changes in the economy. So, you know, one of my favorite details uh, that I learned in my research was that the first women who let men take them out to dinner around 1900 um, these were working women, women going into the city alone without their families, which was a pretty new historical phenomenon then. Uh, those women were often arrested for prostitution, for letting a man buy them dinner, because that was the only, um, you know, that was the only thing that, lo- that it looked like to right. the police and to the authorities then, even if it wasn't a money for sex transaction and when it often wasn't, um, you know, but it was... <laughs> Money yeah. for a meal for your romantic consideration. It was. <laughs> um, oh, jeez. No, we're just having dinner. That's yeah, horrible. No, I mean, it's really funny. I um, a lot of the the first chapter of the book is about prostitution or sort of semi prostitution. This way that, um, that you know, I think people who go out and you know, again, this this ritual of the date. If you think about it, compared to like the Jane Austen type ritual where a man comes to your house with your parents. This ritual of the date, which traditionally involved a man buying something for a woman, 
often kind of looks like prostitution. I think we still have some of that anxiety with us, this anxiety about like, well, what is it for? Who's getting what? Do I owe him something? Like these kind of thinking, which you still see people having, comes yeah. out of that. But in the early police records I read for my research, you constantly see these women being dragged into jail, dragged into the reformatory, saying to the police, no, I didn't take any money. I just took the meal. Um, Interesting. Which is not to say that they had no material considerations. Often they did, because women were paid quite poorly and were often quite poor. Um, so often it was that they needed a meal. But uh, but I'm not joking about that. Yeah, they no. really were arrested. <laughs> and it's interesting, too, I guess. So historically with dating, then, dating was tied to having money. You you needed money to go out and and have an activity or, you know, you had to have enough money I guess as dating became more and more okay, less of a potential arrest, um, it was it was it was probably, I guess, the wealthier class that were doing it. Totally. Well, it has a funny history that way, because it starts out as a real working class and like poor immigrant phenomenon. And that sort of from 1900 till about World War One. And then uh, then you get these sort of flappers and fussers, these really kind of upper class college kids imitating it. And it becomes fashionable. So that's I don't know if people know the book, The Great Gatsby, or yeah. Side of Paradise. That's like that era of of dating. And it's really only a bit closer to World War II that it becomes a sort of middle class, going steady Norman Rockwell soda counter kind of thing that I think we probably now have in our minds. And we think of, you know, quote unquote, traditional, we always mean the 50s in America, Yeah, I think. Um, but yeah, so it definitely goes from being working class to being sort of upper class first and it's still you know it was always expensive it's still expensive oh yeah um, in time as well as money i mean if you think of the amount of time people spend tending to their okay cupid profiles or their i mean i guess the tinder profile takes less time but hinge or you know many of these apps demand quite a lot of time before you even get to buying anyone a drink or a dinner that's true yeah and it's yeah you've got to get through you know 20 text messages eventually to a call from the call to a place to meet. I mean, it, it could take weeks. Totally. Yeah. And it's so, um, you know, it's like many things in this country, I think it's increasingly divided along class lines. It's very different for people with more or less money. But for people, you know, in lower income brackets who are often working multiple jobs, like that's a lot of time. That's not a, a negligible barrier. Uh, so anyway, so it's still, it still costs time and money to date. You, if we don't necessarily think about it that way. Right. One of my favorite things that you talk about, um, because just some of the parallels, are the parallels between dating and working and kind of, yeah. you know, kind of a consumer, like a, a business kind of model. Even the terms mm-hmm. we use around dating and working parallel so closely. Totally. Um, I always, I used to have, I don't have it memorized anymore, but one very long sentence that uses all the market metaphors we use for dating. <laughs> so, you know, it's things like on the market, off the market, damaged goods is not a nice thing to say, but it's a thing people say, um, hard to get, friends with benefits, investing time in a relationship. I mean, all of these are thinking about courtship is just permeated by these economic metaphors. And that was part of what got me interested in writing the book, really. And very early on, I realized it was kind of a history of the economy, and especially of women in the workforce, which, again, you know, um, I call it labor of love, partly for that reason. Uh, People only start dating as opposed to having their parents fix them up or their community fix them up once you get women in the workplace with the freedom 
and the obligation, you might say, yeah, yeah. Um, to find partners. So, so yeah, absolutely. From its very beginning, it changes with the economy in all sorts of ways. It has to do with that original invention being about women in the workforce. It has to do with, um, you know, very practical things like, you know, there weren't movie theaters, and then there were. That was a thing to go to on a date then. Uh, or, you know, working hours, which have gotten so much longer since the 40-hour week of the mid-century. I mean, Americans work much longer yeah. and much more regular hours now. So I joke that, you know, used to say, a man would say, I'll pick you up at 6. And that's going to take you up. Right. It's like, who knows? Yeah. I mean, that looks like a decline of chivalry, and maybe it is, but it is also a practical expression of the fact that nobody's done with work at five anymore. Right. <laughs> or most well, people aren't. Yeah. Um, and you could be, you could actually be working and dating. I mean, you could, being at work together, hanging out and talking could feel like, you know, the same connection of dating. Absolutely. And I, what I thought you were going to say is being out on a date, if you have your cell phone, you can also be taking work emails. Oh, that's true. <laughs> See? Yeah. Which totally. adjusted the date, right? Oh, totally wow. a blend. Um, and then I see the last way I think that they shape each other, which is the hardest to measure, but in a way, to me, the most powerful is I do think all these concepts about, you know, how should a person be to be valuable or competitive in the economy, I think do shift over to dating. Uh, you know, I've taught at Yale. I teach at Yale undergrads as part of my PhD. And I always think it's sort of funny that, you know, everything we tell them about the job market is like, you have to be flexible. You have to be adaptable. Never expect anything to last a long time. Like you can't put all your eggs in one basket that way. <laughs> and then people look at the hookup culture you know, this idea of sort of casual relationships and say, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, it's the exact same logic. You know, Tinder is an Uber for dating. These are just dating on demand apps. Yeah. To me, I think, in a way, the hardest to measure concretely, but the most interesting is the way these, these sort of abstract concepts about how we should be and how we can value other people uh, then sort of trickle into the dating, the dating sphere. Mm. Like, yeah, just that's such an interesting idea that our the yeah, how I set you up to be, you know, a healthy employee and a, a marketable employee is the same paradigm I'm using to teach my daughter to what to date. Right. Well, I think it's I think probably, you know, uh, unconsciously, I think I don't know anything about you and your daughter, but most dads don't want their daughters to be active right. hookups. Right. No, but no. Right. But I think those values do cross over and they make a lot of sense and in the case of the apps i mean these are literally the same tools i mean linkedin and okay cupid you know a job website and a dating site are actually extremely similar in terms of their structure their protocols their layout what they solicit you to do all the time you know linkedin is like add this to your resume <laughs> and okay cupid is like add another book that you like and then you'll find the person of your dreams oh wow <laughs> So oh, I think wow. There are a lot of similarities. Yeah, no, between, exactly. Between those platforms. That's interesting. Um, uh, we're speaking with Maura Weigel, author of the book Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Maura, let's take a break, come back, and uh, continue the discussion. I want to find out if love has changed. Um, are we sure. redefining it? And, and also, um, you know, how, do, how does dating follow as women um, have taken their place? Uh, in in society as an equal. Um, I think it's got powerful insight as well. Stick with us. More with Maura Weigel and uh, the dating game, folks. Not the game, the history, but uh, it's still a game. Stick with us. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, folks. Dating is not dead. It's just changing. It's it's a different game. Now you use an app. And uh, it might be valuable as uh, Maura Weigel is talking to us to uh, make sure we're, we're looking at um, the paradigms behind how we look at and view dating or, you know, the, the, the parallel uh, systems that are going on, our work systems, our technology advances um, or advancements. I mean, so much is going on that's impacting how we would have to date. Maura Weigel is a Ph.D. Uh, candidate at Yale University in comparative literature and film and media studies. She earned her B.A. Um, from Harvard University and is the author of the book Labor of Love, which is her first book. And uh, she researched it and um, tells wonderful stories uh, that she re- that she got, you know, from research, but from history, but also even uh, more from your beautiful uh, 96-year-old grandfather. That's true. Um, that's true. And it was actually, oh gosh, I'm unexpectedly getting sentimental, but he was actually uh, very ill while I was finishing the book in the very last week. And, uh, and I was, I went to be with him because I uh, live out in California, but he is in Minnesota. And uh, it was actually really lovely. I got, I mean, it was sad. But yeah. He was sort of in hospice care and I got to spend really as I was writing the conclusion to the book, I was staying in his basement and getting his stories. It was funny, actually, the one of the hospice caregivers who was around most often was another older woman who was from, also from rural Minnesota. And so I actually did get a lot of lovely oh, great. dating anecdotes, sort of like several generations yeah. of Midwestern dating anecdotes <laughs> at that time. But yeah, he had a great, he had a great time of it dating. I think he and my grandma really had one of those great 20th century romances or, you know, they met, he went away to World War II, they came back, they, uh, so he was happy to talk about oh, it. Isn't that amazing? Kind of the multi-generational view um, of love and dating, it's, it, it probably was exactly what you needed, right, to, to be able to yeah. put the... Yeah, well, what I, what I love is what, part of what was so fun about writing the book um, and what I hope is fun about reading it uh, is that it really is a subject that pretty much every single person has some kind of relationship mm. to. And so, you know, my grandfather, probably not very many things about his dating life and my dating life were similar. Right. But um, but yet there is, you know, I think the vulnerability, the desire to connect, the sense of, I think dating all through history has been both kind of anxious making and made people worry about what they're doing it right, but also kind of fun and exciting. And those emotions were all things we could share. Oh, so that was great. Yeah, totally. Well, he there is there's this scandalized. universal. It's a universal experience, right? I guess <laughs> he might have been scandalized by a few things in the book. In a way, I'm like, it's maybe not the worst <laughs> that he didn't get to read all of it. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe that's how <laughs> God works, miracles. Yeah. Um. But, and what yeah. a I think just a beautiful experience for you. What about um love? Is it is it is it the same? I mean, is it? It seems like it's. It, it might even be taking on less of a romantic quality, or is it taking on more of a romantic quality now? Now we've got all this technology and ability. Is it easier to find the perfect person that we think is perfect, or are we more likely to settle now? Well, I think that it's a complicated question, because I think it's funny. When I was writing this book, I was thinking, oh, dating, dating as a history. This was like this huge revelation to me. 
And then about halfway through, I thought, well, of course, love must have a history, too. All human things yeah. have a history. And I think one way I like to think about it is that I think there are certain aspects of, you know, our desires for one another, how we care for one another that don't change and are maybe part of our biology or sort of part of the kinds of animal we are. Yeah. And, uh, and then parts of it really do change when you think about social roles, you know, whether it's how husbands and wives interact or how parents and children interact. Some of those things do change over time. And one metaphor I really like to think about it that I borrowed from a philosopher I admire was this is like, it's almost like watching a movie star in a movie. And it's like, if you look at, um, Oh, what movie is out now? I don't know. <laughs> Let's say I'll do an old movie, you know, Brad Pitt, Legends of the Fall. It's like if you look at his character, are you looking at Brad Pitt or are you looking at the character named whatever the name is? Yeah. Um, and you're looking at both. It's impossible to say where one starts and the other ends. And I kind of think of that in terms of, you know, in any act of love, in any relationship, there are parts that are probably timeless expressions of our nature or our biology. And then I think there are parts that really change in terms of social role and the different kind of scripts that we're given to sort of fulfill our desires and instincts. And so I think that that's very abstract, but I do think, yeah. I do think love changes in time in some ways, too. How my mother expresses her love to me or to my father, is quite different to how her grandmother would have, I think, and absolutely different to how someone who lives in China now would express it. You know, these mm. things do vary across time and place. Do, um, do the men, yeah. has it changed with, with women? And um, women now really rightfully, finally taking this, this position, um, at least in our dialogue, where it might, they might feel more equal. Um, are they, is it, is it, is it changing the dating experience? I mean, I've had people say, I don't know why, why aren't the women asking more people out? Why aren't it? So it's almost like we, we, we still haven't necessarily evolved to that point. I think that's absolutely right. And one thing that fascinates me is I think that sometimes our, our norms and our expectations about romance kind of lag behind economic realities. There's sort of other changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in society. So I think I absolutely agree with you. There is no reason why a woman should not initiate a romantic, you know, encounter or relationship. Uh, there's no reason, practically speaking, why women shouldn't take that kind of agency. It's like, historically, you know, the reason that people think of women as passive and needing to be sought really comes from this, like, situation from the 1800s or older, right. and having to call on women in their homes where women really couldn't, were not allowed to go out in public on their own and see people. That is not our reality. There's no reason we still need to do that, but we do, um, we do still adhere to that cultural idea, often, I think, to the detriment of both men and women. I think it makes, you know, oh, yeah. forces women not to be able to express themselves or pursue what they want. It also puts a lot of pressure on men. <laughs> like uh-huh. this idea that man, a man has to a man is responsible for sort of initiating every stage. So I think that we do, uh, I think, you know, if you think about career advice versus relationship advice that are sort of bestsellers, I think it becomes very clear and you'll get the career advice and it's all about like, ask for it, lean in, be assertive. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the romantic advice, it's the opposite. It's true. <laughs> it's like, and you, you bring know, that up. It's not in... him, it's you. Yeah. The rules. I mean, there are all these like titles telling women never, that they can't ever go after anything. Isn't that, and again, why? I, I guess it is just, it's kind of just, 
it's almost um I don't like a Victorian age kind of concept that of I don't know nobility I don't know what it is it's but like you yeah, said we lean in af- go after yeah. it make things happen be in, you're empowered break the glass ceiling now it's like uh, yeah. I'll wait but I have in my business I have so many men that are they're shy they're they don't they they want to date but they don't feel socially able. But then I have so many women that come see me that are like, why aren't the men asking people out? And I'm like, go ask them out. And they look at me like I'm nuts. That's not my role. Yeah, I think, you know, those gender norms are taught to us from a very young age and put into us very deeply. When I hear you saying that, I'm like, probably everyone wishes we could just, like, call time out and suspend all those rules. Exactly. I think it would be great. I think we should do. I'm calling for that on the radio now. (laughs) That's great, right now. But but I think that... uh, I think that women are really taught to think that they won't be lovable if they show certain kinds of initiative and agency, and it's like sort of the deep fear that a lot of us feel. And I think men similarly are taught by all these signs in the culture that they're not like real men if they don't, you know, ask women out. Again, I would say I do think there is sort of an unconscious economic aspect. Men do still earn more money than women. You know, I think it's whatever it is, 70 on the dollar, 77 cents. Um, women are disproportionately bear the burden of the risk of pre- unwanted pregnancy right. and child rape. So there are all these ways that some of the same old disadvantages do apply more yeah. than the lean-in crowd would like to think about. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that these these norms are counterproductive. Uh, and sort of outdated, so I am calling to. You've done go it. Ask. You're... All the ladies go ask them <laughs> Well, and maybe maybe it's an echo back to a hundred plus years ago, where you know an aggressive woman or a woman strong enough to go against the norms would go out to dinner with a gentleman and then be arrested for prostitution, even though she was just going to dinner. So maybe it there's is, this this evolutionary echo of be careful, don't step beyond the is. mark, or you're in trouble. I think it is. It's crazy. What um, what do you see as the future of dating? I mean, now we have all this technology, and you know, it, which almost turns into a game. And I might even feel like, hey, yeah, I spent an hour on Tinder, so I've dated tonight. Right. Well, I think that that exactly gets at the crux of it. I mean, I, I should say, you know, if I knew the future of dating, I live out here in San Francisco. I would have, I would have an app, and I'd be <laughs> you'd be a billionaire. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know exactly, but I think that. You know, I think that what we see now in the past few years in terms of trends with these dating apps and how people use them is this push towards more flexibility in relationships. Um, Some people say more efficiency, which I think is a little crazy for reasons we could talk about. Um, But I think that there are good things about that. You know, whether you are a recently divorced person or an LGBT, LGBT person or let's say someone with physical disability, you know, someone differently able. Um, I did all sorts of research on demographics who were able to connect who had really had trouble dating uh, beforehand and found these online tools incredibly useful. And they're useful to people, you know, I personally believe that people should have freedom to define whatever kinds of relationships they want. So they're very useful in that respect. I think the downside, you know, the downside of flexibility or the flip side of it is something like, you know, what I would call precariousness, uh, that these apps encourage us, you know, any app makes money by people using the app. It's sort of a funny, I think Christian Rudder, who's the founder of OkCupid, said, 
it's a funny kind of service business where if you do your job well, yeah. the customer never comes back. <laughs> right. So, uh, so all of these apps are strongly incentivized to keep people on the app and keep them from pairing off. Tinder, which you brought up, is a perfect example. I mean, Tinder game, Tinder, I just said it, Tinder, you know, we said we play Tinder. It's like a video game about dating. Yeah. Um, and I think that, ironically, these very tools that are supposed to make the process, quote-unquote, efficient, whatever that would mean for a human relationship, um, that these tools of efficiency actually lead us to waste a huge amount of time basically doing free work for the dating app, which is what we're doing when we swipe for hours. So I think that, unfortunately, I think we'll see more and more companies that try to make, you know, try to make money, try to create businesses off of, you know, harnessing these very deep, unchanging impulses that all humans have to connect with other humans. Oh, I think that's and, great. That's yeah. that's great. That's great insight. Uh, they're tools yeah. of entertainment, really, right? And entertainment doesn't always equal partnering. Yeah, I think probably it rare, it rarely does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, it's I mean, it's, it's the I same think. thing. You can go to a thousand you know uh, movies, but that might keep yeah. you from talking too. Exactly. Exactly. It's a great analogy. Or it's like a bar, like, you know, a bartender. I you think of the mom and dad, usually the mom, who would run the Jane Austen courtship scenario. Right. In that situation, the parents have a strong financial, legal, and hopefully emotional interest in their children pairing off with the right person. Um, a bar owner, you know, the person who owns the platform, if you yeah. want to put it that way, or creates the site of courtship in the era of dating, has the opposite incentive. And the bartender doesn't care if you get married. He would rather you didn't. Oh, that's um, he true. He just wants tips and people to keep coming and buying drinks. And it's the same with these dating apps. Oh, man. Um, Maura, you're on it. That's it. <laughs> You've solved that. We've got a, That's a great shift in my paradigm right there. I have never thought of that. You're brilliant. Maura Weigel, appreciate your great work. Keep writing, and uh, I I look forward to the next book. Thank you so much. You bet. You bet. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. The name of the book is Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, and uh, you can go find more out about Maura at uh, mauraweigel.com. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I love talking to people that are at the top of their field, right? The top of their game. I mean, some people are sitting there like, well, I don't like people that try to make it sound that simple. And... um. You know, you don't have to go chasing money. You don't have to go be in love with money. And But the reality is there are people, and if you've ever been around somebody, I just sat down with somebody yesterday that is running a huge company, multi-billion dollar company. And he, with thousands of employees and tens of thousands of employees, and it's... It's interesting how organized he really is and how it all comes down to very basic principles in his mind, in his in his head. It really is about principles. And I think that's all Brian was teaching us is there's just certain principles that are going to lead to success. You can argue against them if you want. 
But it's hard to argue that companies that focus on sales make more sales. I mean, if if all of a sudden the average uh, corporation is spending 25% of their workforce, 30% of their money on creating and generating sales, and uh, you know, a little homegrown business is spending 10% on sales, wouldn't it make sense that the corporation's going to make more money? Right? That's not brain surgery. And yet, as a small business owner, it's hard to focus on sales if you don't love sales. I'd rather create content any day, but that's useless if no one's going to go sell the content. So if you want a company to succeed, you really need to do what works. How about just long-term thinking versus short-term thinking? Have you been so busy just living your life day in and day out that you didn't plan ahead for something down the road? Have you ever had a trip that you knew you were going to take in you know, six months from now, and then you waited till three weeks before to get your passport? Oh, just long-term thinking, you know, it helps. It's not perfect, but it, it can certainly help. So anyway, it's, uh, it's just some basic information. Um, and, uh, but also, I think if you just look at, uh, like, Brian Tracy's success rate, it's pretty good. Pretty good. You, if you're selling millions and millions of books a year, you're doing you're doing okay. Doesn't make doesn't mean it's all perfect and great, but he's living his principles. He is creating sales. He is an entrepreneur. He is looking long term. If you're trying to grow a business, you probably ought to grow some of those principles as well. But there might be more. Uh, other things we can be doing. Let me give you a few more that that will definitely impact your ability to to live better. We might actually need to go back into our lives and eliminate some things, right? Get rid of certain things. There's a listen to this story of a 90 year old woman um, from Michigan decided to turn her cancer diagnosis into an excuse to travel across the United States. The woman named Norma is accompanied by her son, Tim, daughter-in-law, Ramey, and their poodle, Ringo. And they are out documenting their adventures via Facebook page, Driving Miss Norma. (laughs) Norma learned of her cancer within two weeks of her husband's death and told her son prior to the diagnosis that she had no interest in treatment. Her son and his wife then explained to the doctor they would be driving her around the country in her RV and ultimately receiving his blessing. As doctors, we see what cancer treatment looks like every day, he said. ICU, nursing homes, awful side effects, and honestly, there is no guarantee she will survive the initial surgery to remove the mass. You're doing exactly what I want to do in this situation. Have a fantastic trip, the doctor said. In August, the family upgraded their motor home to a larger 36-foot model and began their trip by traveling to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota before continuing through the country, visiting other landmarks, historical sites such as Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Ramey uh, told ABC News that in addition to seeing the sites and gaining more than 100,000 likes on her Facebook page, Norma's health seems to be improving. How cool is that? She's getting better, maybe? 
or at least feeling better. She's receiving the benefits of being different, doing something different. Notice she set a goal. She's figured out how the goal is going to work. What a great way. If, if, you gotta, if you got cancer and you got to deal with cancer, it sure sounds like a better way to do it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It's just technology. But I'm telling you, I have a feeling we are getting lulled to sleep. And we are sleeping through our own lives. The minute you have a free second, do you reach for your cell phone? Do you have to go check Facebook to see what your million friends are doing or have done? What is it doing to us? It's killing us. And again, it's just tech. I get it. It's just technology. However, this is still your life. And if you're going to spend the rest of your life just caught up in technology, what lesson are we sending our children? So before we sit there and try to fix our children's use of technology, make sure you take a really strong inventory of yourself. Are you addicted? If you lost your phone, would your life completely fall apart? Well, yeah. Who would I Who would I like? Well, I don't know. But that's pretty pitiful because if you lost your phone, you're still you, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know my friends' names or their numbers. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're not your real friends then. Come on. Come on. Hey, uh, you know, tech is being used everywhere. If you, I don't know if you heard this story about uh, cops. Um, North, Northeast Ohio police are hoping to figure out who left a bag of methamphetamine in a hotel trash, I guess. And they, they, they feel horrible. The police department feels horrible for the owner's loss and wants to help. The tongue-in-cheek message was posted Tuesday to the Macedonia Police Facebook page and asked the owners of the drugs to call or stop by to claim them so officers can, in their words, make your day. It's a trap! A photograph shows a baggie containing what detectives say is about a gram of high-grade crystal methamphetamine worth as much as 160 bucks. The detective at the department, about 20 miles southeast of Cleveland, says there were numerous empty bags in the hotel trash can. Police haven't identified who rented the room using a, uh, a gift card. Um, so if you're out there and you've lost $160 worth of high-grade crystal meth, about a gram's worth, give them a call. Or give us a call. No, don't give us a call. (laughs) No, no, no. no. Don't give us a call. Ben, give the Macedonia Police Department a call. They're worried. They're worried about you. See, you can use tech to help people who have lost things. It's that simple. By the way, I use tech to find my... My iPad once when I dropped it off my car, actually. I left it on my hood of my car. Drove away. I've only heard of, like, women doing that with their purses. Okay. Well, you need to get out more. Ben, because I'm not a woman and it wasn't in a purse. It was on my roof of my car and I drove away. And I called my son and I'm like, have you seen my iPad? And he's like, no. And I said, it's missing. I lost it. And I was terrified. And he's like... Well, Dad, have you looked it up? Have you have you tried to the Find My iPhone app and the Find My iPad app? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? 
And about a minute later, he had found my iPad. He said, Dad, I found your iPad. It's traveling south on I-15. <gasps> what? Anyway, we, te- we contacted the iPad, told him to call this number. We know where you are. And within about an hour, hour and a half, we had our iPad back. Pretty cool. Tech is good. Tech making me happy. This is the Matt Townsend Show.